hello to you. Welcome to Crossroads Church. It's good to be here today as we come together to sing and to open God's word and to look at what God has for us today. As I start today, I want to talk to you a little bit about some family news, just a time to celebrate. Uh, Mandy Avery, who is our worship leader who's standing here today, you see her almost every week. Uh, her and her husband, Will, have been praying for many, many years uh, that God would give them a little baby. And so yesterday afternoon, I have this video for you. We were together at a park for a uh, gender reveal party. Do we have that? Here it is, slow motion. Those are blue. This is a boy. Yep, and here comes, here comes their celebration. <laughs> so much fun. So we're celebrating with them. They're looking for four-letter uh, names, and so my vote is Boyd. So if you've ever seen the show Justified, that's where it's from, Boyd Crowder. So that's where I'm going, and so uh, that's, you can look forward to little Boyd being born in about six months. So with that said, uh, man, I'm so glad that you're here. I want to welcome those of you joining us uh, online, uh, also at Fort Lupton. My name is Matt Manning. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church, and today uh, we are in week three of our sermon series, Christianity for the Curious, the Cautious, and the confused, where we are uh, going kind of week by week and throughout this series of really trying to, to attempt to lift the fog, uh, the religious fog that comes around Christianity so that we can really see it as it truly is. And just so that you know, as we get into the series, we're not pulling any punches here. The whole reason that we're doing this series is so that you have the information that you need to make an informed decision of whether or not to follow Jesus. That's the whole reason that we're doing this. And so maybe you walk in today and, and you're curious about the faith, or maybe you've walked in a little bit cautious, or, or you come in with a lot of questions because of, because of how confused you are around Christianity. We want to attempt over these six weeks together really to, to clear up as much as we can so that you can see Jesus for who he is. Now, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, uh, this isn't like, oh, good, I can just kind of like sit back and check out. No, 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 no. The way that this works for you is, is part of the reason we're doing this series is so that you can have confidence in the faith that you have and that you can take that confidence and lead that into conversations with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, so that you can answer the questions that they have when it comes to who Jesus is and what he's all about. And so since we know that there is a lot of questions and a lot of curiosity around Christianity, we thought we would just take the questions and the topics and just work through these over the course of six weeks. And so if you missed the first couple, uh, let me just kind of tell you where we've been and where we're going. So week number one, we really looked at why Jesus came. And what we discovered is that for most of us, we have answers to that question, that every single one of us has, question, or has an answer to that question. And while we may have an answer, and while that, question, or that answer may be even really good, when we open up the scriptures, Jesus actually tells us with his own words why he came. And he says that he came into this world to bear witness to the truth, so that you and I would know truth. Like, this is the foundation, this is the baseline upon which everything else is built in Christianity of why Jesus came in order that he might bear witness to the truth. And last week, Pastor James brought, came and brought to us what Christianity is really all about. And what we discovered is that the truth of why Jesus came through his life, his death, ultimately his resurrection, was so that we might flourish as human beings. Like, that's the offer on the table to us that we might flourish in this life and in the life thereafter. For many of you, you were deeply impacted last week by James's sermon. 
Today, we're going to talk about why we believe the Bible is the source of truth. I'm going to invite you right now back next week as we talk about the nature of God. After that, we're going to talk about the nature of man or humanity. And then we're going to wrap it all up with what the Christian life is all about. And so today, we're jumping into this discussion about the Bible. Because when it comes to the Bible, one of the core beliefs that Christians hold is that the Bible is the source of truth. But here's the question that we're going to attempt to answer. Why? Why do Christians believe that the Bible is the source of truth? Why do Christians believe that the Bible is trustworthy and true? Like, why is that? Well, we're going to attempt to answer that question today. Bart Ehrman, you may be familiar with that name, he's a pretty popular uh, professor at UNC Chapel Hill, it's University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, he's the chair of the religious studies there. He is also pretty famous for being a biblical skeptic. When Bart walks into a classroom for his intro to New Testament on the first day, he comes shuffling in with all of his papers, his Diet Coke, he puts it on his desk, he turns around, and immediately he asks the students this question. He goes, how many of you here today believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, that means without error, word of God? Most everybody in the class raises their hand. It makes sense, right? They're in a New Testament course. Then he asks a second question. He says, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you have read through the entirety of Harry Potter? Everybody raises their hand. And then he asks them the third question. How many of you have read completely through the Bible? Very few people in the class raise their hands. Ehrman then makes his point. He says, you believe in something that you have not even read and when you do read it, you put it on the shelf next to the fantasy world of J.K. Rowling. Listen, there is no book in all of history that is more debated, more discussed, more dis dissected than the Bible. That when it comes to the Bible, our society is basically like chunked into three categories of people when it comes to the way that they interact with the Bible. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. The first group really looks at the Bible and they respect the Bible as truth, but they don't really follow it. They respect the Bible as truth, but they don't really follow it. Then number two, the kind of the second group of people is that they believe the Bible, but, and then they follow it with devotion. So the first group believes the Bible is truth, but they don't really follow it. The second group of people, they believe the Bible and they're devoted to it. And then you have a third group of people which reject it simply as a book of legends and myths. That when it comes to our society and the way that we interact with the Bible, largely group people fall into one of these three groups. But things are changing quickly. In fact, group one is almost entirely disappearing from our society as a whole. And the relationship between group two and three is becoming more tension-filled every day. See, it used to be that if you were a person who believed in the authorities of the scriptures, who believed in the truthfulness of the scriptures, your skeptical neighbors would maybe come alongside you and they would maybe explain to you why they don't believe that. They would maybe shake their head at you, maybe even behind closed doors in their own half. They may chuckle at you believing that the Bible is truth. But today as never before, the character of the Bible is publicly attacked as cruel and oppressive, and those who uphold the historical view of the Bible in its truthfulness are seen in the same light. There is an enormous amount of social pressure to completely disregard the historical understanding as the Bible in its truthfulness. 
And the question then becomes, in light of the social pressure, why do Christians believe that this is the source of all truth? Why does Christianity believe that this book is true? Well, in answering that, let's first talk about what Christians mean when they talk about the Bible. In reality, the Bible isn't just a book. It's actually a compilation of 66 books. It's more like a library than it is just a single edition. It's a library of 66 books that were written by 40 different authors in three different languages. And it spans history, history and time through multiple different settings and co covers a multitude of different themes. And the reason that the Bible is so debated is because those who have been, these books that have been gathered together by Christian communities, that these books are considered the revelation of God, that these are the very words of God. Now, this word revelation comes from the Latin word to reveal, which simply means literally to pull back the curtains, to pull back the curtains. Now, here I am on this stage here, and there's these big curtains to my right and my left, and if you were to show up here on the weekend, these curtains would be pulled shut, and you would not be able to see anything that was going on on this stage. But on Sunday morning, you, you come, and the curtains are pulled back, and everything is revealed for you to be able to see clearly. That's the idea behind the Latin word revelation, that you're able to see clearly because the curtains have been pulled back. Now, the authors of the Bible contend that their writings are God's drawing back the curtains, revealing himself, revealing the truth about himself so that you and I can see him clearly. See him clearly. And the concept of this concept of revelation really spins into the theological concept of inspiration. It's what we call the inspired word of God. Now, when it comes to inspiration, the problem for us is that in English, inspiration or inspired means several different things. There's many different definitions for the word inspired. For some, when they use the word inspired, sometimes the way that we use it is to convey like creativity. Like, for example, if you went to the Van Gogh exhibit, the immersive Van Gogh experience in Denver, you may walk, about, walk away from that going, that was a very inspired exhibit. What you were meaning to say is that this was a very creative exhibit. Or if you were like me, you walked in and you went, they just put all of his paintings to pictures and put them on big walls and charged people $60. We got big walls, right? Other times, other times we use the word inspired uh, to convey its impact on us. Whatever it is that we're experienced, that there was impact on us, and we would say that we were inspired. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor James went to the Pearl Jam concert. It's his favorite band. And so he went, and for the next two weeks after he went to that concert, he had his air guitar ready, and he would just sing it, and he would stroke it, and he'd go, oh, I'm still alive. It was very weird, all right? But but James was inspired by Eddie Vedder and the boys. When it comes to the Bible, when we use the word inspired, it's much more profound than any of those two definitions. The way maybe we can best see it is in Paul's writing to a young pastor named Timothy. He writes these words to him. In 2 Timothy, he says this, that all scripture is breathed out by God. That's what Christians mean when they use the word inspired. 
that the very words on the pages of Scripture have been God-breathed. That the way that, that we think about it is like, like they've been put there by God himself. Like God used people to write these books of the Bible. And that God was so involved in the process that as these authors wrote down these words, they were writing exactly what God wanted them to write. This is why when you pick up your Bible and you begin to read it, you'll see over 3,000 times the phrase, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Listen up. Here's what God is saying. 3,000 times that phrase is used. We walk into the Old Testament prophets, like one of the major prophets, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah understood what was going on as he was writing the words. He understood this theological concept of inspiration. When he wrote in Jeremiah chapter 1, he wrote these words. He says, I have put, then the Lord, then the Lord put out his hands, and he touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold... I have put my words into your mouth. That the prophet Jeremiah, he, he understood what was going on. He understood that what he was writing was not just simply from himself, but actually the words of God. We get into the New Testament, and we see this in Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' apostles, and he writes this in his words. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Saying, listen up, we didn't just come up with this. He said, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Time and time again, as we open up and we read the scriptures and walk through the scriptures together, we see that the authors of the Bible contend that their writings are God drawing back the curtains in order to reveal himself to us. Peter says, look, you know God. And the reason that you know God is not because of the will of man. That you know God because the Holy Spirit has worked through us so that God could reveal himself to us. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't until the end of the second century that all of these books got put into, you know, canon. That's what we call like the defined 66 books, like this one literary book. Not until the second century did this happen. And the reason... It was not because, like, there was this huge debate over which books should, you know, be in the Bible and which books should not be in the Bible, like which what books are the Word of God, which are not. That, that wasn't a debate. In fact, the reason it didn't happen is because everybody basically agreed. And it wasn't until, like, heretical teachings started popping up in the history of the church where the church was like, you know what, we need to do something about this. And so they sat down and they began to canonize the book. They started to put it all in one book. And so in the Council of Jamnia, it happened in AD 90. This is when the Old Testament was canonized. And then in 397, in the Council of Carthage, that's when the New Testament was added. And all of that was ultimately what we call the Bible. Now, I go through all that because it's important to our discussion to understand that when we say the Bible, what is it that we're talking about? It's the 66 books that, that Christians believe are the inspired word of God. But that does not answer the question, does it? It doesn't answer the question of why do Christians believe that this is truth, the source of truth? See, why are these books, why do we consider these 66 books reliable and true and not others? For Christians, the answer is that it all revolves around Jesus. See, for every single one of us, we have to make peace with who Jesus is. That there's not a single historian out there who's reckable who would tell you that Jesus did not walk this earth. That almost every single person agrees that Jesus was a historical figure, that he did walk this earth. 
The question is, is do you believe he is who he says he is? Going all the way back to week one of this series, do you believe that Jesus came into this world to bear truth so that you and me, that we would know truth? Because either Jesus is who he says he is, the son of God, and therefore the champion of truth, or, or he's some crazy dude with a God complex, but he cannot be both. We have to make our peace with who Jesus is by what he says to us. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? See, the reality is, is that I can stand up here today and I can very detail, in detail, explain to you why these stories cannot simply be myth and legends. I can even take you down the long road of textual criticism, that is the academic discipline of authenticating historical documents to say whether they're real or not. And I can show you how the Bible stands head and shoulders above every historical document that we have access to in the modern world. But neither of those answers the questions, does it? It doesn't answer the question why Christians believe this is true. See, the reason those of us who follow Jesus accept the Bible as true and reliable is because Jesus did. Plain and simple, because Jesus did. See, when Jesus quoted the scriptures, which he believed were inspired, what he was quoting from is what we call the Old Testament. We have a great example of this in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 18. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's saying, look, you can, you can trust this. And he mentions the law, which the question then is, is, what is the law that Jesus is talking about? Well, the law that he's referring to is what's commonly known as the Torah in Jewish cultures or the first five books of our Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That those were the book of the laws, that there was a set of decrees in those books that were often described as or shorthand for the law. And Jesus says, look, that nothing's going to come to pass until all of the law, the first five books, until all of those are accomplished, until they are accomplished. That time and time again in the gospel accounts, it's the accounts of Jesus' life, we see Jesus affirming time and time again, over and over again, the, the, that the Bible, that these books were inspired. They were the inspired word of God. For Jesus, the Old Testament was no ordinary collections of writing. In fact, as we look at the Old Testament and his relationship to Jesus, what we find is not only did Jesus like affirm the Old Testament, he didn't just affirm that the Old Testament was the inspired word of God, but it was actually the foundation of his life, his ministry, his worldview. This we can see so clearly in Matthew chapter 4. If you're familiar with Matthew chapter 4, it's the story of Jesus' temptations. That Jesus has been walking in the desert, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he's walking through this desert. He has no food, no water, and three times the devil, the enemy, comes to Jesus to tempt him in the same three ways that the devil uh, tempted Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning of time. And all of creation is watching this, and they're going, oh, no. Like, we've seen this story. We know how it ends. And all of creation is sitting there holding its breath. Is Jesus going to make the same decisions that Adam made? Are we going to go down the same path? 
And as the temptations come to Jesus and as the pressure mounts on his shoulders, every single time he bats the temptations away by using Old Testament scripture, specifically using the book of Deuteronomy. Like Deuteronomy was Jesus's go-to book and we can't even make it through it without sleeping. Like that's his lightsaber of choice to fight back the beams of temptation that Satan is throwing at him. His entire ministry was built on the book of the law, the quotes of David out of the Psalms, even stories from the prophets that we today in modern world look at as crazy, like the story of Jonah. All of them, all of them, Jesus built his life, his ministry, his worldview around. And for Jesus, he did not just walk in this world affirming the Old Testament as the inspired, inspired word of God. He walked around this world living as if they were. It's why here at Crossroads, the second core value that we have is that we treat the Bible like we believe it because it's what Jesus modeled for us in his very own life. We flip from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and again, we look to Jesus. Because it was Jesus himself who laid the foundations for the writings of the New Testament through a group of men that we know as the apostles. Now, that word apostle is just a Greek word, and what it means is those who have been sent. That's what apostle means. It means those who have been sent. And we see the culmination or the origination of the apostles in Mark chapter 3. Mark writes these words to us, and he went up on the mountain. This is Jesus. He went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed the twelve, whom he also named the apostles. That Greek word there is apostole, to be sent out. That's what he's calling them. It's, it's the noun form. So that they might be with him, and that he might send, that's apostolo, that's the verb for apostle, them out to preach. That Jesus calls together the twelve who we commonly call the 12 disciples, and he gave them this special title of apostle. Now, it's important for us to understand the difference between an apostle and a disciple. So not all disciples are apostles. A disciple is someone who, who chooses to put their trust in, their devotion in, who chooses to submit all of their lives to Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. That if you're here and you've committed your life to Jesus, online, committed your life to Jesus, in the history of the world, people who have committed their lives and submitted their lives to the Lordship of Jesus as their Savior, they are disciples. They are followers of Jesus. However, the apostles were unique. In the Bible, only the original 12 disciples and a handful of others were ever called apostles. Most notably, Paul. That Jesus selected this relatively few, and he gave them this mission. He sent them out, and where he was sending them out to was on the mission to go preach his word, to preach his word. Did you see it in Mark chapter 3? That he called them together, and he sent them out to preach. So they had a ministry of preaching and teaching. The apostles received this special calling from Jesus. It was never self-appointed, and it was always to take on this prophetic role to preach and teach God's word to people. That these were men who were to speak in Jesus' name and convey his word to others, carrying the very authority that Jesus himself carried. That's what an apostle was. 
that this idea of apostleship does not exist anymore today, that I am not an apostle as I preach, that anybody who claims to be apostle, you run away from them. The apostles were a small group of people who Jesus commissioned to be sent out to preach and teach in his name, conveying his authority. In January, we're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to be in our second season as we make our way through the books of the Bible. And in that, we're going to come across the conversion story of Paul. It's the moment in Paul's life where he sees Jesus for who he is. He sees Jesus clearly, and he decides to give his life to Jesus. He commits and submits his life to Jesus. Years after that event, Paul's standing before a Roman official, and his name's Agrippa, and he's recounting his conversion story, his salvation story to Agrippa, and he recounts Jesus saying these words to him, where Jesus looked at him and said, Paul, I'm sending you out. Very literally in the Greek, what Jesus was saying is, Paul, I apostle you. I'm apostle you. I apostle you. I'm sending you out. See, each apostle was given a historical experience with Jesus as he walked on this earth. It's so important for us to understand that. It's why there's no apostles here today. It's why we see in Acts later or earlier in Acts when the apostles are sitting there and they're trying to find a replacement for Judas. Do you remember Judas was, was one of the 12, the original 12. He betrays Jesus. Jesus ultimately goes to the cross because of his betrayal. Afterwards, Judas can't live with himself and so he commits suicide. After the aftermath of all that, after the dust settles of Jesus' death, ultimately his resurrection, the disciples are sitting there and they're going, hey, there's only 11 of us. We need some help to carry this. We need another one. We need another apostle. And the main criteria that they were looking for is someone who had been with Jesus, who had walked with him in his ministry so that they could be an eyewitness to the teachings and life of Jesus. So for Paul, the last commissioned apostle, it was the interaction with Jesus that was so important because without it, he would have never been an apostle. He could not have been an apostle. Now, each of the apostles were given a special ministry through the Holy Spirit where Jesus commissioned them to, to teach on his behalf, and they were doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And while it's true that every single one of us who are followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit that's promised to us, that, that when, we, when we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit descends, uh, descends upon us, that we have the Spirit in our lives, that through Jesus, the Holy Spirit had this special work with the apostles, where the Holy Spirit would give them a remembrance of the teachings of Jesus as they actually were, and that they would inspire them to write things that were also from God. It's why the apostles' teachings were considered scripture. And when it came to marking the New Testament, like which books got in and which didn't, it was very simple. The simple criteria for the New Testament was this, was it written by or based on the teachings of Jesus or the apostles? That was it. Was it based on or was it from the teachings of Jesus or the apostles? We see this even more clearly in Acts chapter 2 where the disciples, where the early church is gathering together and every day we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Like, this isn't some idea that came centuries later. Like, the understanding of the role of the apostle in the life of the church didn't come generations later from the church going, we need to make sure that people pay attention to this. No, this was an immediate thing. That the early church saw that when the apostles spoke, it was as if Jesus was speaking to them. 
To accept the apostles was to accept Jesus. To reject the apostles was to reject Jesus. So here's where this becomes so important. Years later, John, one of the other apostles of Jesus, one of the original 12, he was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Many people consider John the best friend of Jesus because when Jesus is hanging on the cross, taking his last breath, one of the final things he says is he looks to John, he says, John, will you take care of my mom? When I'm gone, will you take care of my mom? So John, years later, decades later, he's sitting down and he's writing his account of Jesus' life and he writes these words in John chapter, 30, uh, John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written, but these are written so that you. What he's saying in this summary statement is that all the things that I've written in this account of Jesus' life, everything that I've written in this gospel up until this point, all of this was written so that future generations could see what I see, could, could, could experience what I touched, could know what I know, that future, experience, that future generations, when they come across this, that they, would, that they would see what I was able to see. He says, all of this is written for the future generations so that you, who's the you? The you is you. The you is me. The you is those of you listening online. The you is we throughout the history of this world that we are the you. And John says, man, I'm writing this all down so that anybody in future generations who stumbles across this, including you, would be able to see what I've been able to see, which we go, John, what is it that you saw? But these are written so that you may believe, trust, put your faith in that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Savior, and not only is the Savior of the entire world, but he's also the Son of God. It's not like he's like God. He is God. And that by believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that you, you, may have life in his name. Like, that's the offer. That's the offer. Paul says, I've written, or John says, I've written all of this down so that you might believe that Jesus is who he says he is because Jesus, he's changed my world. He's changed my life. He's the one that brings hope when the world seems hopeless. He says, he's done all of that in my life so that I might have life and have it abundantly. That's the offer. It's what James talked about last week. See, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the reason that we believe all of this Bible is true is simply because Jesus did. That's it. Because Jesus did. And we watch as Jesus models how we are to allow the scriptures to come in and to shape us. It's why we can't just leave this book up on the shelf next to J.K. Rowling. We gotta take it down, we gotta read it, we gotta study it, we gotta memorize it. We gotta allow it to transform our lives because all of it was written. It was written, it was written by God himself. It was the inspired, true word of God. And so as I wrap this up, I'm gonna give you just two quick takeaways from this. Number one is I want you to take out your phone. You can go ahead, give permission. Take out your phone. I want you to go to the app store. Regardless of what, you know, device you have, whether it's an Apple or some lesser creation, just go to your app. 
Just kidding. Just go to your app store, and I want you to look up the YouVersion Bible app. YouVersion Bible app. It looks like this. You can find it. It's by far the best Bible app that's out there. It has ways to motivate you, tools to motivate you through the week, that it has like six billion, no joke, six billion devotions and Bible studies. You can choose whatever version of the Bible that you would like to read in this Bible app. And here's my encouragement to you. Download it, put it on your phone, and open it up and read it every day. Choose a Bible study and walk through it every day. And do it before you go to your social media. Your soul will thank you, okay? The second thing that I have for you is while your phone's out, if you are ready to take the step of talking to someone about what it means to walk with Jesus, what it means to be one of his disciples, what I'm going to encourage you to do is right now text the word Jesus to our text number, 720-513-1933. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we come to you, and um, Lord, your, your word is life, as John says. And today, Lord, I pray that everybody in this room, those who are listening online, Lord, that they would know that these words are trustworthy and true, and that through them, Lord, you reveal yourself in ways that we can know you and have life. And so, Lord, I pray for the people in this room who are in one of those three categories. God, I pray for those who have maybe considered themselves believers, who have said, I believe that the Bible is true, but have never actually lived their lives according to it. God, I pray that you would move in them today, that you would light a fire for them to open your word. Lord, I pray for those today who have maybe been walking with you for a short time or maybe a long time who look at the Bible and go, yeah, I believe it, and my life is devoted. God, I pray that you would give them courage in this time as the social pressure mounts to continue to open the word, Lord, to continue to, to find the words of life that are there. Lord, may the Bible never get old to us. And Father, I pray for those today who are curious, maybe a bit concerned, Lord, maybe who have questions that in, their, that in their curiosity or their skepticism, that they would open your word and they would find what John writes to be true. That as they look for you, that they find life. God, you are a good God. We thank you for your son, Jesus, that he is the truth, the way, and the life. Lord, we pray in his powerful name. Amen. Today we come together, as we do every week, to celebrate communion. And the reason that we believe that the Bible is what it is is because Jesus did. And the reason that we believe in Jesus is because ultimately what he did on the cross, where his body was broken for our sins, where his blood is the blood of life. And through his resurrection, he proved that he is who he says he is. And so today, as a church family, we eat and we celebrate. And we drink from the cup, knowing that this is the offer of life given to us. Over the course of the service, if you need prayer, we would 
encourage you to get some prayer in house. You can make your way over to the prayer banner. We'll have people to pray there for you. Online, you can just click the button and we'll answer you through there. But I'm gonna invite everybody in house to stand as we sing to our good God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, today.